Jesus is alive, amen. What Jesus said, taught, and did, and does, and is going to do, is all tied to who he is. He's fully human, fully God. He is, as John said in the beginning of his gospel, the Word. John 1, 1 through 3, says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. Excuse me. The word in Hebrew is a, it means, means several things. The, the word in Hebrew means several things. It means an agent of creation. That is reiterated in Psalm 33, 6. It's the source of God's message to his people. It's earlier in the um, uh, book that, that uh, Jeff read from in Hosea 1, 2. The source of the message to God's people. It is God's law and a standard of holiness. That's in Psalm 119.11. The word is, in a word, Jesus. Later in John 1, he, um, John wrote, wrote his gospel and demonstrates what, it, what this means to us. John says in, in verse 14 of, of, the, of verse 1, So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. He came as a human, but he remained eternally God. He's always existed. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the source of eternal life, we're going to find out today. But you already knew that. John crafted his gospel the way he did because he knew the more we knew who about Jesus is, the more we'll know how amazing he is and how much he loves us. And then we will grow in the knowledge and love for him. And that's the purpose of his gospel. In fact, John states the purpose of his gospel near the end of the gospel in John 20, 30 through 31. Disciples saw Jesus do other miraculous signs in addition to the one recorded, ones recorded in this book. But these are written, so John picked out the ones for this purpose that he's going to state now. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you have life by the power of his name. See, the goal of John's gospel is the knowledge of who God is. The word reveals God to us, and the more knowledge we have of God, the more, we, more love we have for him, and more love we have for him and his people. Because he knows us completely the way we are and still loves us in spite of that. And John makes that very clear. This makes us thankful. And then this love and the gratitude leads to joy. And this becomes our motivator in all the things we do in leading other people to the kingdom. As we serve in love and gratitude and joy, we start conforming to his image. And that all starts here on earth. Paul reflects this exact same goal in his letter or actually his prayer for at the end of his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 17 through 18, Paul says, I'm asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand 
the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are rich in, um, who are, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. So back to John, in his gospel, he records Jesus proclaiming that he is the son of God, and then he records the people's response to it throughout the, the, those that he encountered. Some of them, as we will see, as we read through John's gospel, as we go through John's gospel, they come here and see. We're going to read all the way through John's gospel, but I'm told I only have an hour and a half, and it takes a little longer than that. So, um, they, so as we will see, as we go through John's gospel, they come, they hear what he has to say, and they see what he can do. Some worship and follow. Some shrink back. Some are confused. No one completely understands it. Some don't need to completely understand it. They charge ahead anyway and proclaim it. Some seek to silence him, right? After John introduces the word, he picks up with Jesus at the start of his ministry, skips the birth, skips the, you know, a lot of things, but gets right on to Jesus at the start of his ministry. At the start of his ministry, he introduced John the Baptist. Now, when John says John in the book of John, he's talking about John the Baptist. John doesn't use John to refer to himself. He says, the one whom Jesus loved. By some accounts, he's Jesus' best friend while, while Jesus was here on earth. Um, he calls himself the other disciple a couple times. When he says John in John, he's talking about John the Baptist. Next, Jesus, after John the Baptist is introduced, and John the Baptist introduces Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus starts calling the disciples to come. In John 1, 35 to 39, the following day, John the Baptist was again standing with two of the disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, there's the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. And in the next slide, verse 38, Jesus looked around and saw them following and said, what do you want? He asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said, come and see, he said. The hour is about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained there for the rest of the day. These were John the Baptist's disciples. They think it was Andrew, the brother of Peter, and another one. They don't know which one, or some, this gospel doesn't know which one, doesn't state which one. And they went with him. As I read this, I understood this is the first case of ministry hopping. You know, they were following John the Baptist, now they're following Jesus. Um, then he meets him and calls Philip. Um, so, so then he meets and calls Philip, and Philip tells Nathaniel what he saw in Jesus. So now Jesus is starting to call people to him, and his people are starting to call other people. So he meets with Philip. Philip talks to Nathaniel, and in John 1, 44 through 46, Philip was from Bethesda, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathaniel and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Going on, Nazareth explained Nathaniel. Nazareth explained Nathaniel, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip says to him, come and see for yourself. The account of John disciple himself being called is in other gospels. Uh, Matthew 4, 21 to 25, has this. A little further up the shore, he, Jesus, saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. They were fishermen. And he called them to come too. 
They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Matthew goes on later in that chapter to talk about that many people came to him during this time. Um, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And these people were coming kind of to see something new and to get what they wanted from Jesus. He healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing him all who were sick. Whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed, or if they were epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. Okay, getting back to John now. In chapter 2, John documents eight miracles um, John, the first of eight miracles that he documents throughout the, his gospel. He only picks eight of the miracles, and each one of them has a specific attribute about Jesus that was, that was pointed out by that, by that miracle. So John perfectly selected them to show us more about who Jesus is. We're not going to go through all eight, but you're going to hear me say this several times today. It, you know, that would be a whole nother sermon, and I'm going to say that multiple times today. You guys will get where you'll finish my sentence for me, probably. But in this miracle, the first miracle he points out is Jesus turning the water into wine. So that been in Cana and Gal at the wedding in Cana in Galilee. So right after that, so the, the, you know, Jesus is healing all these people. The first miracle he actually describes is the is the the changing the water into wine, and then next in chapter three, Nicodemus comes to him. Um, and that, that scripture is John 3, 1 through, th 1 through 2. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religi religious leader who was a Pharisee. And he came after dark one evening. He wanted to preserve his job, right? He came to speak with Jesus. And Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So Nicodemus, even one of the Pharisees, the people who turned out against Jesus, came to him in the early days. Chapter 4 talks about the Samaritan woman. John 4, 6 through 10, um, he's traveling, Jesus and the disciples are traveling through Samaria. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from all the long walks, sat, searly, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. She wasn't looking for Jesus. He met her where she was. She was on her way to work, right? And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The, Roman, the, the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Why are you talking to my kind of people? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift is gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Jewish leaders in chapter 5 came to him to stop what he was doing, discredit him, or do whatever they needed to do to end this ministry. It was starting to cut into their, their program, right? They, they drew from the temple tax. They were uh, adulated. People bowed down when they walked in. Here's Jesus telling them everything they're talking about doesn't count and that he had a new message for the people, and he was drawing people away from their ministry. They saw an end to their, to their money train. In John chapter 5, Jesus had just healed the sick and crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, and he said to him, pick up your man, mat and walk, if you remember that part. And then in John 5, 16 through 18, it says this, so the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rule. 
rules. And they'd also asked the, the, the guy that he healed for picking up his mat on the Sabbath and walking around with it. They said, you can't do anything on the Sabbath. It's against the, that's against the law. Well, that's not against the, you know, if you remember what God said to Moses when he was given the Ten Commandments, he said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Set it apart for God and keep it holy. He didn't say you can't do anything that day. He didn't say you can't do good on that day. But the Pharisees added about 600 qualifications to the Ten Commandments, actually more than that. And, but that's a whole other sermon, so we're not going to go into that. So, so, they, so the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus and, the, and the, the man that had picked up his mat. But Jesus replied, my father is always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. That's kind of sudden, isn't it? Here we are just learning about him, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus wasn't one of them trying to kill him, per se. But here we are, go from, from wanting to learn from him to trying to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. So they came. There are a lot more examples in John's gospel, and there are many more in the other gospels. But after they came, some of them, and many of them, believed. John 2, 23-25, because, and that's not up on the screen, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in the Jerusalem at the Passover celebration. That's where he emptied the, the, the temple because they were gambling and they're doing business there. And he, and he said to them, he proclaimed, you tear down this temple, talking about his body, and in three days I'll raise it back up. Some of them got that, some of them didn't, right? And, and then the miracles I told you about, healing all the sick and all that, the, the, the water into wine, all that had happened. And so many became to trust in him, came to trust in him. So many were following him and tagging along to see what he'd do next. But it said they trusted in him. It didn't say they believed in him. They're, they're trusting him to give them something, right, to, to provide for them. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. Therefore, we don't need to worry, it seems, when someone starts becoming interested in Jesus, where their heart is. God knows where their heart is. We need to keep proclaiming who Jesus is and let God work through their heart. We don't need to worry about other people, um, whether their salvation is real or not. We need to, to concentrate on who Jesus is and what he wants for his people. I heard Chuck Swindell teach one time about salvation and all that, and he said, you might be surprised who's in heaven, but don't worry, they'll be equally as surprised to see you. So, um, We do know that the disciples believed um, Peter, for sure, um, Matthew and the others, too. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea and Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Going to the next slide, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. Because you watched me, you learned about me, and my father revealed to you who he is through me. You did not learn this from any human being. Now, that I, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. Upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. 
and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. They believed, and believing Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, is a big deal. And Jesus said, as Jesus said in John 5, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins because they've already passed from death to life. But for the disciples, their belief is really going to get challenged at Judas' betrayal. John doesn't share the, um, the betrayal kiss that, that other, other gospels share when, when Judas told the um, the coming soldiers and to arrest Jesus, which one Jesus was, and they already knew who which one it was, right? But he doesn't mention the kiss, but he talks about Jesus' arrest. And in Matthew 26, 56, um, it also talks about the arrest. And what happened after Jesus was arrested is what happened to these disciples that, that believed? They all fled, right? They all took off. But this is all happening to fill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. And it says, at that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. They all deserted him. But was it that they didn't believe? Didn't we just say they believed? It was before this, right? That they believed. John 18, 12 through 16, clears this up a little bit. It talks about after Jesus' arrest, what happened. So the soldiers, their commanding officer, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they took him to Aniah. Ananias, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, and Caiaphas was one you remember that said, you know, one man should die so that to save basically our program. You know, if one man has to die to keep our program going, it's better that one man should die for his people than we all um, lose lose what we have going. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another disciples, and that other disciple, and that other disciple, by the way, was John. So Simon Peter followed Jesus and did another disciple. So this was John, because John was acquainted with the high priest, and, and, and John knew, knew the, the people, and so the person that stopped uh, Peter at the, at the gate of the, of the temple courtyard let Peter in because he, she knew John. So they didn't go very far, did they? Because as soon as Jesus was arrested and brought before the high priest, they were right back with him. Maybe they were weak, but it can't be said they didn't believe. You know, it's certain at the cross that, that, that it all started to come together for the disciples. Because on the cross, it's clear that what Jesus had said and did in front of them was now revealing who he is. They saw the love in Jesus' eyes when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. When he said to the one of the criminals beside him, Today you will be with me in paradise. When he cried out to his father and prayed um, for them. They saw his love pouring out. He held back nothing. And John gives the most complete account of what Jesus' words, words were to the disciples as the crucifixion was approaching. Most certainly, when they looked up and beheld him on the cross, they recalled what he said. And these are not scriptures, they're not all up on the board, but just track with me if you can, if you're looking them up. John 8, 27 through 30 was something Jesus said before he went to the cross. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will understand that I am he. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the Father taught me, for I always do what pleases him. John 10, 14 through 18. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me, just as my Father knows me, and I know the Father. 
So I sacrificed my life for the sheep. Then later in verse 17 he says, The Father loves me because I sacrificed my life, so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. They had to see that Jesus could have put, pulled, called down legions of angels and delivered himself from that event anytime he wanted, but he didn't. For I have the authority to lay it down, and when I want to, also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. Lastly, in John 12, 23 through 26, Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care, for nothing, care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. But even though the disciples' belief was solidified at the cross, as ours is today as we remember and celebrate the crucifixion, it was not enough. Because immediately after Jesus says it is finished, they ran and hid again, right? And Jesus, had, Jesus went after he was resurrected and found them. Nicodemus also believed at some point. He stood up to the other Pharisees, and he certainly did after the crucifixion. As history says, um, he helped Joseph of Arimathea properly bury Jesus' body. That's a risk a non-believer that was a Pharisee would not have taken. He may have recalled Jesus saying to him in John 3, 14 through 16, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone in, who believes in him will have eternal life. Nicodemus was completely familiar with this. This is from Old Testament, Numbers 21, where Moses lifted up a likeness of a snake on a pole before the, the Jewish people. And, and when he did this, they were delivered from the snake judgment. Now, if God wants to get my attention and tells me I have to do something to avoid snake judgment, I'm going to pay real close attention to that, right? I mean, snake judgment's a good way to get my attention. And that's what Nicodemus was recalling as, as, um, as, he, he, as he watched Jesus on the cross. For this is how God so loved the word, he says, and it's worlds, he says in John 3, 16, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will, have etern will not perish but have eternal life. I'm sure the other Pharisees and Jewish leaders were rattled when the temple curtain tore. The, te the tearing of the temple curtain was an impressive event. It was several feet thick, several stories tall, weighed hundreds of tons. And when Jesus said, it is finished, it, it, there was an earthquake and it tore down the middle, giving access to the Holy of Holies. And that's a whole nother sermon, right, <laughs> to talk about with that, the significance of that. But that, the earthquake and the eclipse, they may have believed that Jesus was a real deal, but did it change anything in their lives? Did they leave their positions? Those certainly got the attention of, two, of, of the Roman soldiers. John talks about them in plural. The other gospels talk about them as one person. But um, so Jesus shouted out again. That's when he said, it is finished. And he released his spirit. At that moment, the temple and the the, at the moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. The Roman officer and other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that happened. 
They said, this man truly was the son of God. So did they do anything? Did they quit their jobs? Did they become disciples? Don't think so. I think that would have got recorded, but we don't know. You know who had the strongest belief early? Who? Uh, glad you asked. Um, the, Samaritan, the Samaritan woman is who did. She, you know, we don't know if she was at the cross. Probably doubtful. She was a Samaritan woman. She may not even known it was going on, right? News didn't travel except by word of mouth then. But we didn't know if she was there. But here, and, and you know the story in John 4, we shared it earlier. Jesus is a Jewish man. He gives a Samaritan woman the time of day. He treats her with respect and meets her on her ground and asks her to serve in a way that she's fully capable, right? He said, give me a drink. She would have been familiar with that. That's what she was there for. He shows he knows her better than she knows herself. He knows her past sins, her five husbands. I won't go into that story. He knows her wrong beliefs, right? That she's, she worships a different a pagan god. Um, she hasn't seen any healings or, or miracles, right? She just met him and, and is talking to him and is amazed at, at how, the compassion he has for her with all the things, all the differences they have. But she believes, and she evangelizes, actually. If you look at John 48, 20 through th 28 through 30, the woman, le a woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. So they came, but they also believed, because if you look at John 4, 39 through 42, many Samaritans from the village believed Jesus because of what the woman had said. He told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay. They loved hearing him. They loved listening to his compassion. They loved hearing his voice. Um, and and, he st and uh, so they, he stayed there two more days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard for ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. You see, we have to come to him. And if we come to in earnest and see who Jesus is, as the Samaritan woman did, we will come to believe. And that's where a lot of people in ministries get stuck. Get them in the door, get them to believe. And then what? If I can pause for script, from Scripture for a minute now, and I know, Allison, I promised I wouldn't, wouldn't do that. <laughs> um, but this is where the church turns on the guilt, right? right? They say, you're saved, but you may be saved. You believe. You say you believe. But if you really believe, you're going to tithe to our church. If you really believe, you're going to start doing this or stop doing that. If you want real rewards in heaven, you will blank, right? Do you want to get to heaven by the skin on your teeth? I was asked by a religious leader one time when I first got saved, do you want to get to heaven by the, by the skin on your teeth? And I thought, well, I don't know. It's worked so far in every other area of my life. Why wouldn't it work here? <laughs> B plus C makes PhD. That's what I always said through grad school. So don't worry about it. You know, get by by the skin on your teeth. You know, you look at the Samaritan woman at the well, Nicodemus and the other J Jewish leaders, every one of them believed, right? But, but we wonder as a body or as, a, as, a, as believers, what's next, right? And we have to ask the questions another way. I think we have to look at what Jesus said to those who said they believed and understand what we're supposed to do when we believe. Many believe, people did believe in him, however, and, and the Jewish leaders, some of them believed in him. Listen to this. Many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue. They believed 
that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that Jesus was probably the Son of God. But it didn't change anything. And I know a lot of people like that in the world. They're, they have this life on this earth that they, that they have, and they're not going to give it up just because they believe. All these people believe, but they didn't take the next step and follow. And Barb shared it really well last week. we got to make them Lord of their lives. We don't need Jesus to be our, our example of how to live. We need him to be our Savior, the Lord of our lives. Scripture, to my knowledge, is silent about what happened to the woman at the well and even Nicodemus after he helped uh, Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus' bodies. And even the disciples, as convinced as they must have been after watching the crucifixion, needed an encounter beyond belief in order to serve in the way that Jesus is calling them to serve. And Jesus' instructions to them is instructions to us. Coming to Jesus and believing he is the Son of God and accepting his forgiveness is a great way to die. It's better than going to hell, right? But Jesus is about to teach the disciples and us the next steps to start living in eternity here on earth. Having a saving faith only takes us so far. Jesus' intent was made clear by what he said in John 16. Most of John 16 is Jesus telling his disciples, explaining what was going to happen at the cross. John 16 is all red letter. And praying for the disciples, Jesus says, For the Father himself loves you dearly because you love me and believe that I came from God. Yes, I came from the Father into the world, and now I'll leave the world and return to the Father. Then his disciples said this, At last you are speaking plainly and not figuratively. Now we understand that you know everything and there's no need to question you. From this time forward we believe that you came from God. And Jesus looks at him and says, Really? Do you finally believe? But the time is coming and in here now, and is indeed here now, when you will be scattered, and each one going his own way, leaving me alone. Yes, you believe, but belief is not enough to get you through what's coming. And that's our message today, church. Yes, we believe, but belief's not enough to get us through what's coming. Jesus makes it clear he wanted them to come. He went to great length to help them to believe, but he knew these steps would only take them so far. In order to live in the kingdom, they would have to follow him. John made his point clear when he concluded his gospel we shared earlier, John 20, uh, in John 20, verse 30. The disciples saw, what, saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so you may continue to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. Is there a period there? No, there's a comma. And then he says, and this is the most important part of all that, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Following must follow belief. If simple belief were enough, the chapter 21 that follows this would have been an appendix. Because the disciples at this point believe Jesus wants to know that they are going to follow him to the end no matter what. So in John 21, setting the context, after the resurrection, they believe. Jesus appears to the disciples twice in the room where they were hiding, right? They believe, even um, Thomas, even doubting Thomas. They believe. The disciples now are on the shore of Galilee. They believe, but they don't know what to do next, right? So they're all around wondering what's going to happen next. They know Jesus is alive. And they still don't know what to do. Peter says, I'm going fishing. So they all go. They all pile in the boat and they go fishing. And they fish all night. They don't catch anything. Then Jesus shows up on the shore. They don't quite know it's him yet. 
He says, cast your net. Have you caught anything? And they said, no, we fished all night and didn't catch a thing. He says, cast your net on the other side. As you know, they catch 153 fish. And John says, it is the Lord. He believes, right? Peter jumps in the water to go be with him. He believes. Second time Peter jumped in the water, right, because of his belief. They bring in the catch, 153 fish. Takes a while to get them on shore. Jesus has already got breakfast cooked for them. Where did he get the fish to cook breakfast, by the way? He just walked in, right? After breakfast, Jesus, asked, and this is John 21, 15 through 70, picks up 15 through 17. Through 70, that's scary a little bit. Um, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Did he say, do you believe in me? He already knows he believes, right? He said, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. I, you know I love you. By the way, more than these what? More than the other disciples? More than those other disciples love me? More than the things of earth? More than fishing? More than your job? More than your own life? Maybe all of the above, right? The other thing about this is, as Peter and, and Jesus have this interaction, there's been sermons taught and things written about the, the verbs they use and things like that, the, 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 verb, the word love, um, versus uh, the way Jesus says it versus Peter. I'm not going to get into that. I don't speak Greek, um, and I'm not even as good as Barb. I don't have the app. So um, basically, I think what Jesus wanted for this to be really easy to understand for us. So I think they're using synonyms through this, at least for the sake of argument today. Let's say they are. So then he says, then feed my lambs. Then f-. So Jesus said, did he say join a church? He said, no, then feed my lambs. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. Next slide. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. See, Peter's not declaring anything right now. Peter loved Jesus like a good man loves any other man. And he has loved him for a while. He's believed in him for a while. But that love causes us to go back on our word. That love causes us to desert when we should stay. Jesus questioning hurt more than sin. Sin doesn't hurt. Sin deadens pain, right? The word of Jesus, the striking word of Jesus hurts deep. We can say that we love Jesus, and that's pretty easy. We could just skim the surface of Scripture, pick out the parts that don't force change, you know. But when we really dig into who Jesus is and what he said um, and what he said to us, and what he did and does for us, it hurts. Because we realize how wretched we are in comparison. We realize how wonderful he is, and we're singing praises to him. All of a sudden it dawns on us what we are like. What we're really like when, when we're not dressed up and in church. We also realize he knows it too. And then his questions and words really hurt us. And that forces us to either love him deeply or reject him. Right? It's kind of the moment of truth. And that's where Peter's at right now with him. True deep love doesn't make proclamations. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Keep true love keeps us looking up, looking to Jesus for what the next thing is. And this is where Peter's at now. He's not proclaiming what he can do. Peter is realizing that he's devoted. He's believing to Jesus, but he's been relying on his own strength. And then at this point in the conversation, he gives it up. 
He says, Lord, you know everything. He doesn't proclaim, yes, Lord, I read your word every day. He didn't say I go to church every Sunday. He didn't say I say grace before meals. He didn't say I tithe. He didn't say I help out at the food pantry. He cried out like the psalmist cries out in Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you've examined my heart. You know everything about me. You know when I sit down or when I stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me. You follow me. You place a hand of blessing on my head. This is my paraphrase. You love me anyway with a love that is to die for. Such knowledge is too wonderful me, too great for me to understand. And Jesus said, you don't have to understand. He said, feed my sheep. Do you get what's happening here? What Jesus is saying, he said it three different ways. God's love is inherent in who he is. It's, everything, it's in everything he did and does. That's why John pointed out the things he did. It shows his love. It shows who he is. It shows how amazing he is. He healed. He released. He provided. He poured it out on the cross. It's what held him on the cross. It frees us. It was this, it's the, 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 the songs we sang today said. It was displayed in his life at the cross, and we read the accounts of it, we believe, and then we receive his Holy Spirit. This unites us with God, and his love is in us now. His birth, and so Jesus wouldn't ask him if he loved him as a person. Jesus says, my love in you. Is my love in you yet? His birth and earthly life were foretold by the prophets and documented in the Gospels. His life of healing, love of compassion, forgiveness, justice, and kindness reflect that of the Father and of the kingdom that's coming. On the cross, he made seven statements. That's a whole other sermon. Actually, it was here. It was seven sermons. Um, the one that brings the point home today is it is finished. What is finished? Is earthly life? Well, yeah, but it's more than that. He's saying it is finished, Satan. You're defeated. It is finished, death. You are done. Sin, you have no hold on these people anymore. It is finished. The deal is sealed, and now death is not the end. It is finished, guaranteed. A day is coming when heaven will come down to earth, and he will be leading, as Barb shared last week. And we will be one with the Father as Jesus is. What is what, thank you for the amen. I know we're pretty light a church that way, but <laughs> this could get me charismatic. Come with me. Okay. Well, what, what oneness did for Je and what oneness did Jesus have with the Father, by the way? What is the result of this oneness? Look at John 20, 21. And again he said, and it's not up here, and again he said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. God sent his son to serve and sacrifice, and so Jesus is sending you. So it clicks for Peter. Jesus is saying, pour it out like I did on the cross. Don't just tell him how much you love me, how much I've done for you. Look up, fix your gaze on me, and receive. Feed my sheep. Use what I've given you to give them what they need. Sheep may be dirty. Sheep get hungry. Some are mean. Some have gone astray. Right, Seth? Not, not that Seth's those things. He has sheep, okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, he knows sheep, all right? That was what I was getting at. Um, but no matter what kind of sheep we are and what kind of sheep we encounter, it is impossible to use up God's love, and it will be impossible to use up yours if it springs from his spirit. 
It's not just for those who are drawn to naturally. My gosh, God proves that to me every day. Um, It's not just based on our natural sympathies or what we think we're supposed to be called to do. I have to feed a sheep. There's no relief from the commission. There's no way out. Then in chapter 21, verse 18 through 21, immediately following the questioning, now Jesus is getting ready to tell Peter the cost of following him. And he says, I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus has said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him, follow me. You see, what he's doing is he's going to say, this is going to cost you your life, Peter. And how would Peter end up doing? History tells us that Peter was crucified just like Jesus was, but he didn't want to to take on Jesus' honor of the crucifixion, so he had him crucify him upside down. This is the man that deserted him, right? Denied him three times. And now he's, now he's being crucified upside down because it's gone to a whole new level, hasn't it? Follow me. It's easy to come to Jesus and sing songs, say how much we love him and believe. But we're willing to count the cost and endure to the end. And this is what Jesus is asking Peter. Something we haven't touched on is the Holy Spirit being sent to empower us after the crucifixion, counsel us, and reveal Jesus to us. But that's another whole sermon. Peter expressed that he would follow even and die for Jesus in John 13, 36 through 37. Then Jesus said to Peter, you will deny me three times, John 13, 38. Peter showed he would fight for Jesus with the sword when he cut off the soldier's ear, John 18, 10 through 11. But he did deny him three times, John 18, 15 through 27. So John in 21, starting in verse 18, Jesus is telling Peter that the cost of following him will include laying down his life to glorify God. Peter just said, I love you, Jesus, three times. And at the end he said, your love is in me from now on, right? He just said it. And when when Jesus says to him, you're gonna have to lay down your life for me, what does Jesus say? Let's get on with it. I'm ready. Take me on. No, he looks around. Peter turned around and saw behind him the disciple Jesus loved, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, by the way, John, Lord, who will betray you? And Peter asks, what about him, Lord? What about him? Is he going to have to die too? You know, I, you're asking me to lay down my life. What about these guys? You know, they're, they're on the same salary I am. They're, you know, you know, we like to compare, don't we, right? We like to compare our calling Comparing's gotten us in trouble from the beginning. Remember Cain and Abel? Remember Miriam and Aaron versus Moses in Numbers 12? Even the disciples and John said, Lord, uh, two of them said to him, John and his brother, you know, Lord, make a way where one of us can sit on your right and one of us can sit on your left. Right, left. I'm not professional, by the way. Um, Sit on your left when, when we get to heaven. We want to sit on your right and your left. We want the best place in heaven. Even the disciples, as much as they knew about Jesus, were comparing themselves. So back to Jesus and Peter. How did, how did he answer Simon Peter's comparative question? In 21, 22 of chapter 21, um, Jesus replied, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that for you? As for you, follow me. Jesus is saying, you follow me no matter what. He has a path for you to follow him that he's made you perfect for. 
So don't worry about anyone else's path or ministry. Don't worry how many salvations they have each week. Don't worry about their weekly attendance. Don't worry about how many instruments in the place band. I'll put ours up against them any day. Don't worry where your salary falls in the standard curve. Don't worry about what you had to give up to be here. Run the race with the rucksack I give you. Plant the seed that's in your bin. Climb the poles that you have to that analogy's not working the way I want it to, but you feel a connection here? <laughs> you feel like we're, you feel breakthrough, Brett? Yeah, 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 good. <laughs> Jesus sums up his gospel in, in verses 24 through 25. This disciple is the one who testified to these events and has recorded them here. And we know that he counted these things as accurate. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, the whole world cannot contain the books that were written. These things were picked so you would know who Jesus is. This conversation between Jesus and Peter isn't about Peter and his willingness to follow Christ, and it's not about ours. It's John's whole purpose in writing his gospel. Christians will ever know what it means to come to Jesus, believe in him, and follow him to the end no matter what. The modern call to come and believe falls way short of this. So where are you? This isn't about HCC per se, but let's start here. We're all here today. It's just us talking now, okay? Why did you come here today? Most of my life, church is where you go to be among good people and clean yourself up so you're presentable to God. Maybe you came for free breakfast. That's great. I'm glad you're here. Why did you come to Jesus? Or have you come to Jesus? Someone tell you what he's done for them? He's inquisitive. You want to know more? Like Nicodemus? You tried your way and, you're, and it's not working? You have a need for healing? Now that you're here and you're before Jesus, do you believe? Do you believe he died on the cross to free you from the penalty of sin and the grip of sin on your life? Do you believe that love held him on the cross and that if you were the only sinner, he would come back and do it for you? You've read, you've sang, you've heard about his compassion. You're moved to do something. You've been freed from the penalty of sin. You have achieved his righteousness, the scripture says. You can't do anything to make him love you more. You can't do anything to make him love you less. Those aren't my words. So you came and believed. Do you love him more than these? Your earthly relationship, your job, your prestige, other people's opinion of you? Have you committed to follow him no matter what? Are you afraid your calling won't be as cool as someone else's? He may have you quit your job, sell your house, and move to Africa and dig wells for people. But more likely, he's going to ask you to bring the kingdom to your place of work. More than likely, he's going to ask you to feed his sheep, someone in your, where, that you work with every day, that you see every day is hurting. You got his sheep living all around your house. How many of them are here today? He's going to ask you to dig deeper in his word until it starts hurting and pruning at you, till you start seeing how great he is and how wretched we are. And that starts to hurt and deepen your love for him when you realize he loves you anyway. He loves you totally anyway. Are you ready to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters? Not necessarily give your life. Those of you in military and first responders might have to. But he might not call us all to, to give our lives. He asks us to lay down our lives. Put others' needs before yours. Are you ready to take yourself off the throne and put him on it? Have you been serving, tithing, and worshiping out of guilt? Are you tired of it? Is it harder, harder to keep showing up? Let the love that was poured out of you on the cross drive you to love, gratitude, and joy. Let love, 
gratitude and joy lead you to action. Use your gifts to feed a sheep. Follow them to the end, no matter what. Thanks to the beautiful and errant word of God, we know how this all ends. John 16, 33 says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. See, a day is coming when we are in an instant be just like him. We'll be continually in his uninterrupted presence. We'll be free of the presence of sin, pain, and death, and free of the problems of this world. Worship and praise will just pour from us. We can't help it. It'll pour from all creation at that point. Until then, go out motivated by love, gratitude, and joy. Know that it is finished. A glorious day is coming. And knowing this makes this day and every day forward more glorious.